Welcome to SLP Full Disclosure, the podcast for SLPs by SLPs, where we deep dive into a variety of topics to empower, educate, and entertain. Join us each episode to hear from expert guests and topics that matter most. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and let's jump into this episode. Welcome to SLP Full Disclosure. I'm one of your hosts, Jennifer Martin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alyssa Hunter. Hello. We are so excited. I, I mean, we say we're excited every time. It's kind of, we need a, new. we need some we need synonyms yeah. as SLPs, synonyms, but I am so, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to Thrilled. Ken. We thrilled. are thrilled. Oh, good synonym, Jennifer. Okay. We're thrilled. We're thrilled to talk to one of my dear friends, Kendra, today. Um, Kendra is a bilingual speech-language pathologist with a special interest in diagnostics and treatment of language impairment and speech sound disorders in young children. After working with bilingual students in Chicago, with myself, um, she spent 14 months as a volunteer speech-language pathologist in the Dominican Republic, which is very cool. Kendra currently works as an early intervention service provider in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and in addition to her passion for supporting bilingual families. Kendra enjoys weekend trips to Lake Michigan, trying new hobbies, and attempting to not fall behind in book club. Something we have in common, Kendra. So welcome to our show today. We're so happy Thanks. that you're here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Kendra. And so most of the time when we have guests on, I know quite a bit about them before we begin. And I'm actually very excited that I do not know a whole lot about you. And mm-hmm. I'm very I'm interested to learn more about you. So one, you know, one thing I do know is that you have worked in a lot of different settings and places since you graduated, when you, since you completed grad school. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey as an SLP so far? Yeah. So when I was in grad school and undergrad, I knew that I wanted to incorporate Spanish and being bilingual into my profession. And so once I finished up grad school in 2016, I began a position in the Chicago area where I actually worked with Alyssa at a school district just outside the city with many bilingual programs, bilingual clinicians, administrators, educators. And so that was really my first work experience and experience in the bilingual setting. Um, And it really continued to spark my interest in working with children um, and families from culturally, linguistically diverse populations. And so that was what inspired me after that to seek a position abroad um, in the Dominican Republic. Um, So that's kind of just what's brought me to where I'm at now. I'm currently back in Michigan after completing 14 months abroad. And I work with about half of my caseload are bilingual Spanish-speaking families and half of my caseload is monolingual English-speaking or families who come from different linguistic backgrounds. And so I feel like that's kind of just a passion that's kind of guided my career so far, and I'm excited to see where it takes me next. That is, when you're saying all of this, this resonates very much. I'm also a bilingual SLP and have worked with that population for 15 plus years, so I I heart them as well. (laughs) (laughs) So I love that you uh, have that same passion. And so, you know, you could have probably gone with your bilingual SLP in a very large urban area, you could have probably gotten a job many, many places. So what made you 
decide I want to go volunteer my time versus, you know, finding employment in the United States? Right. So service and volunteering has always been a big part of my life throughout high school and college. I really appreciate opportunities to work with um, families, refugee families, immigrant families, um, service opportunities where I'm involved with different cultures and belief backgrounds among the people that I work with. And so after, you know, working a few years at this, my job in the Chicago area, feeling more competent professionally and, and my skills, um, my Spanish speaking skills, my linguistic skills, I just thought, you know, I have the time, I have the energy, I have the flexibility if I were to ever move abroad. Um, and spend a year or so of my life volunteering, this would be the time to do it. That was so smart. And the, I, I just really admire that because it, it, that not a lot of people would have made that decision to do that and give that your time to this organization and this population. So that's very admirable. That's very cool. Yeah. Thank you. And I think it also is such a good kind of lesson to our listeners and something we talk about a lot is when you're young and when you're flexible, take advantage of that time mm-hmm. and really be intentional about it. And I love how you've been doing that. It's very cool to watch. So I know that I was kind of with you throughout this decision-making pro- mm-hmm. process. I remember sitting with you in many of coffee, coffee shops in Chicago talking about this volunteer opportunity. But for all of our listeners who are maybe considering volunteering abroad, how did you decide which organization to volunteer with? I'm sure there are so many to choose from. Like, Tell us a little bit about them. The organization I volunteered with is called Nuestros Pequeños Hermanos, and it actually has homes for orphaned or disadvantaged youth throughout South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. And when I was in grad school, I had on a Google search, speech pathology abroad. And I remember the website for this organization popped up. And I read through it and I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. But at that time, I was like, oh, I could never do that. Like, that's just, wow, that's a huge commitment. That's that's kind of wild. But in my work in Chicago, I met a colleague who was actually planning to work with the same organization in Guatemala. And so in getting to know her and then keeping up with her during her first year of volunteering at the home in Guatemala, I decided, you know, this is an organization I'm really interested in. It seems like an opportunity that would fit what I'm looking for in a year abroad. And so that's how I kind of got interested in this organization. And, um, decided to pursue that opportunity. So it sounds like your search started with good old Google, which is a great tool (laughs) for anyone to use. But if people are kind of at the very beginning of their search and they're interested in volunteering as a clinician abroad, what type of resources, you know, or even keywords do you think that people should kind of use to navigate the whole system? Yeah, I think Well, what I personally looked for in an organization was a longer term commitment, such as one year or more, because I knew that in order to serve effectively, um, I needed to have, you know, that time to build a relationship with the community that I'd be working with. I also looked for a reputable program um, and really just asked, you know, each organization that I kind of considered, can I speak to a therapist or a volunteer who's done this position before? And I found that um, the organization I went with, NPH, Nuestros Pequeños Hermanos, was the one that they really were 
willing to say, oh, so-and-so is in this country, here's their email, or you can talk to this current volunteer. And so I'd say someone who's looking to go into um, volunteering abroad, really do research, ask questions, um, ask to talk to others who have done similar positions, and then that can really guide your decision-making process. I really like that idea of talking to someone within the organization who's done this before as a peer. Um, That sounds like a great strategy. While you are doing this, you know, search, what are also some red flags that you were looking for, some things that you were like, "Eh, I don't think this is a a reputable organization or someone that I should be working with. Right. So definitely looking into the organization as being reputable. You can check out sites like Charity Navigator. Um, You also want to look into the training requirements and commitment requirements. I felt like I wanted to go with an organization that really valued volunteers, but also preparing volunteers. And there's a lot that you can't be prepared for. You know, you go and you you figure it as you go. But I felt like I wanted to find an organization that at least would provide me with some support prior to going. Um, And also consider the living conditions and what the work expectations would be for you as a therapist. Um, You want to make sure that you'll be able to match your expectations with what they're expecting of you as well. I think that is such great advice because I think sometimes it's hard for us in you know United States to picture what living conditions may be like in other countries that don't have as much as we do here. So I think that's really great advice just to make sure you're safe and going to be um, it's livable. And there's a really interesting documentary right now and I think it's on Netflix. I can't remember, but it talks about you know, these orphanages and how you, you want to think that everybody's doing this for the right reasons, but you're right. There are some that, that are not. So, you know, I think just being smart, looking at their reputation, talking to people, I love all those pieces of advice. So I also want to just kind of talk to you a little bit about, you know, once you decided which program you were going to go to um, in you know, what were the steps? What was the interview process like? You know, how did you choose where you were going to volunteer? Can you walk us through some of those pieces? It was actually a quite extensive interview um, and preparation prior to going. I, if I remember correctly, there was a written application that was many pages with short answer, um, asking you questions professionally, personally, about certain situations, scenarios, how you'd handle um, approaching different issues. And then there were, it was at least one to two phone interviews with a volunteer coordinator based out of the United States. Um, And then after that, they kind of discussed what countries had positions available, a need for a therapist. And in the field of speech pathology, many of the homes did have a need. So I had the opportunity to consider a home such as Nicaragua, Guatemala, and also the Dominican Republic, Honduras. Um, and in deciding which country to commit to volunteering in, I was considering safety. I knew I wanted to also have a chance to travel around the country while I was there and also a need. So the Dominican Republic had been a home that had gone about a year and a half, if not a little bit more, without a speech therapist on site. And so that kind of was what um, 
inspired me to choose the Dominican Republic as the country I'd be serving in. And I love, you know, it's really interesting to me that you bring up this vetting process because I hadn't really even thought about how extensive that could be and how much time that would take. So that's really interesting and something to keep in mind when planning to do something this way, that it sounds like, you know, from start to finish, what was the the timeline? Like how much time from when you decided I'm going to do this, found the company to when you actually started? I believe I applied near the end of December, early January. And then April is when I committed to starting my service year in July. So about four or five months overall, probably. So it's good to keep that in mind when planning, that it's not going to be something that's instantaneous. Right, right. And they do look for volunteers, um, you know, starting six months prior, or I'll say, how do I say that? They they do hope to, how do I say that? <laughs> They're looking like, so in that process about six months prior to your departure date, at least. So I know you mentioned that there were some expenses involved. If you would give kind of like a rough budget that someone should make when thinking about this application process, what what number would you throw out there? For the application process, I don't remember a ton of expenses being involved. The organization covered background checks. Yeah, so... During that part with the organization that I ended up, Noises Pequeños Hermanos was the only organization I actually applied with, and they did cover background checks. Um, but I don't believe there were a ton of other fees or costs involved in the application process. Okay, but then you were talking about expenses just as you got ready for departure and things like that. And I definitely want to hear more about how you prepared for that. Did you have to get any special visas? I did not, but it depends on what country you're going to. So that's definitely something that um, a clinician should talk to their um, volunteer coordinator about prior to deciding on where they'll be going and when. How does that work with licensing? I know that from state to state here in the U.S., it's a whole hoopla when you move, and it's definitely possible, but it's just a lot of documentation. Did you have to get any additional licensures or things like that working abroad or volunteering abroad? To work abroad as a volunteer with NPH, I was just required to maintain my national ASHA licensure as well as state licensure during the time that I'd be serving. Okay, so keeping up those maintenance, like continuing education hours and things like that. Exactly. Is that different per country, do you know? I am not sure. Uh, That would definitely be something to check prior to committing. You know, Kendra, I'm looking at you as as the all-knowing expert. I thought you had tabs on every country. <laughs> well, and I know oh, just yeah, I think there's a lot of differences, I imagine. So um, definitely just for someone who's looking into this to consider all these, you know, factors before committing to something. Well, and I know just from doing teletherapy and working within that field, there's a lot of therapists that want to provide services to people virtually in other countries and to live in other countries and provide services from there. And so from what I found from my research, there are some countries that have rules and regulations. There are some that have none. So it's, Mm -hmm. and and it's interesting. It's not always the ones that you would think would and not the ones that, you know, always the ones that you think would not. So 
I'm curious, it, you know, is there any profession that's comparable to a speech pathologist in the Dominican Republic? Or was that completely new to them, this whole concept and profession? You know, that's something that during my really entire time that I was there, I was really trying to figure out. So I spoke with a lot of um, my the local therapists that I worked with, for example, a physical therapist. I had the chance to visit a rehab center in the town where I was working and kind of explain what I do, what speech pathology looks like in the United States, and ask, does this exist here? And for the most part, I would be told, yes, we have speech therapists, but and honestly, now I'm still not completely sure what the training is for that. As far as I know, the speech therapist that I was, um, I didn't actually meet another speech. Sorry, I'll go back. Uh, I didn't get the chance to meet another speech therapist in the Dominican Republic, for example, a local therapist. But I feel like it does vary. Um, and I'm still honestly not quite sure out of what the exact training or roles and responsibilities would be. I think a lot of what I did at the home was feeding and swallowing therapy. And it sounds like that might not be an area of expertise that therapists in the Dominican Republic would have. But to be honest, it's something that if there's any, you know, local Dominican SLPs listening to this, please let me know because I'd love to still learn more about what that looks like. Comment, but leave comments on our... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny you say that because I'm thinking as you're talking, well, there's a lot of people here in the United States that don't have any idea what we do. So it does, you know, mm -hmm. it's not surprising. So one of the things I know I'm very curious about, and I know that our listeners will be as well, is what does a day in the life of that that volunteer situation look like? Can you just give us kind of a rundown of what maybe a typical day looked like for you during your time there? My mornings would typically start with working in our special needs home where we had a variety of children with severe multiple impairments, moderate impairments. Um, and so that therapy really was focused more on caregiver training in the area of safe feeding and swallowing. Um, a lot of these kids, you know, were wheelchair bound, had significant dysphagia and had gone much of their lives without therapy. And so I would be working with, you know, the caregivers to train them in, you know, signs and symptoms of aspiration, helping, you know, use different tools and feeding strategies to help the children um, eat and drink effectively and safely. And so that's what my mornings would typically do. Sometimes I would co-treat with um, a local occupational therapy student who would work at our home and do some more cognitive linguistic stimulation with the kids. And then also we had a physical therapist, a volunteer PT from Spain who was there. And so those mornings would kind of be spent collaborating with them, collaborating with the caregivers for those children with the severe impairments. In the afternoons, I worked in an on-site school where I serviced kind of your more typical school speech path caseload, you know, some artic kids, social pragmatic language. Um, and that was kind of looked more like your pullout therapy as you'd have here in the States. I also worked with a special education teacher of a classroom that had about 10 students. And so collaborating with her, helping implement some behavioral strategies um, for the classroom, also giving um, some support in the areas of, you know, language and um, that for the children is what I would do in my afternoons. 
So you were busy. It sounds like you didn't ever have a dull moment and had a oh, no. <laughs> very well-rounded experience, which is amazing. And, you know, I, I think we are in many ways cut from the same cloth because I, you know, do a lot of childhood, you know, feeding and swallowing as well. And I know that just even here, you know, having those, the parent involvement and the caregiver involvement is huge just for carryover and education. And I can't even imagine how wonderful that was for them there, because if they don't have something comparable, you were possibly the first person that had ever told them what was going on, given them strategies. You know, it sounds like the teachers benefited greatly from, you know, it sounds like you were able to make a lot of change, really positive change in your time while you were there. Yeah, I definitely, it was a process and it was a challenge. I think um, in the end, now that I've reflected on it and, you know, as I really learned how to effectively collaborate with the caregivers and the educators, we did see change. But um, one of the biggest challenges I feel like was learning how to combine my professional judgment or what I would be expected to have accomplished here in the United States or the resources I would have had here in the United States be able to combine this, you know, my experience with the perspective of the caregivers and the administration there. And so I do feel like we were able to work together and make some changes. They weren't always as big changes as I would have hoped or anticipated, but I, it was a really excellent experience and learning, you know, evidence-based practice in an environment that, you know, presented a lot of different challenges and um, perspectives. Well, and I just imagine too, you know, working with the resources that you have and being really creative with that because, you know, if I was seeing a child and it's like, oh, you know, I know which spoon would be amazing to, to do feeding with. I go to Amazon or, you know, go order it and mm -hmm. then have it within a week. So how did you work about incorporating the resources that they had? Did you have to get very creative sometimes? We were actually quite lucky in that your, you know, basic physical materials and resources um, were available at the home. There has been a history of therapists coming in, also visiting therapy groups that would donate materials um, and resources to the home. So your basic things, you know, like the maroon spoons and nosy cups, you know, kind of those sort of materials were available. Oh, wonderful. And so um, we were lucky and I was lucky to have that to work with. Um, I guess as far as other the biggest challenge as far as materials and therapy would be, and it was actually honestly quite fun to find culturally appropriate um, materials and activities. I wanted to make sure that any sort of tool that I was implementing or activity that I was using was something that could be um, recreated when I was gone. I didn't want therapy to just stop and end with me, which I think is a huge issue as a, as a therapist going to work as a volunteer in a developing country. Um, and so that really meant getting kind of creative with what sort of activities I was using. For example, in my school-based therapy, I was working with some adolescents with, um, some learning disabilities and I found it beneficial to use wordless videos, like how to videos. For example, Sarah Wu is a bilingual speech pathologist who has these videos on YouTube where it's like making popcorn on a stove. And so for them, I was kind of thinking, okay, how can we work on problem solving skills with something that they'd be familiar with? And so we watched a simple video 
such as that. We talked about the steps and the ingredients involved. And then we also discussed, well, what foods do you make at home? How can we, you know, plan and prep this activity? And so really making it, you know, as culturally relevant and appropriate as possible was where I, I felt like I got the most creative. Well, and I love that because that you, you want it to be sustainable. And mm-hmm. I, one of the biggest complaints that I've heard from different organizations that have volunteers come over is they do these great things while they're here and then they leave and then nothing is continued because, you know, it was presented in a way that it wasn't going to be sustainable. So I love that you're, you know, incorporating what they already have and what they're already doing, because that's exactly what's going to make it possible for them to continue to do it. So that is wonderful. Thank you. So I love also how you're, you know, thinking about how your activities are going to be culturally relevant to them and trying to connect with the caregivers and administrators on a level that matches up to what their expectations are. And I'd love to learn more about how did, in the Dominican Republic, how did they culturally view disability and view therapy and these changes that you were trying to make? I know that, you know, as us both, all three of us working with different cultures throughout our careers in therapy, that we encounter all different types of views of disability, you know, like, oh, my daughter has autism because she drank cow's milk. And there's Mm. all different types of things. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about Um, you know, any cultural differences you encountered and kind of how you dealt with that? Within the home where I worked, I feel like there was um, a lot of acceptance towards disability. But I do know that some Dominicans, not all, but I would be in conversation with locals, just they'd explain, oh, there are certain stigmas that some people believe, such as um, don't eat off the same plate as someone who has a disability, you'll get sick, or you can't touch a child with a disability, they'll make you sick. Other beliefs that my fellow volunteers or I um, witnessed or would hear about were that sickness is a punishment from God and that mental illness is the work of the devil. And so um, I think that those are some some stigmas that um, were present not all the time, but among certain individuals that, um, you kind of had to listen to and ask, Oh, okay. So this is what you believe, explain more. And then, you know, approach it like sense with, within a culturally sensitive manner of explaining where you come from and your beliefs. Um, and then I guess just, yeah, the awareness of therapies and why certain techniques might be utilized is something that also um, was a bit of a challenge in educating um, the the caregivers that I worked with. Yeah, absolutely. I really like how you mentioned the listening piece first and the acknowledgement and taking those as the first steps instead of jumping in and being like, oh, well, you know, that's actually not true. And I think that really acknowledging that there are, there is so much diversity. And of course there is education to be given, but sometimes that rapport and that acknowledgement needs to be provided first before you can take the next steps. Right. Something that came to mind pretty early on during my year was, um, the mantra by the Hannon program, observe, wait, and listen. And I found that that was really beneficial as a therapist to remind myself 
and you know the situations okay Kendra observe wait and listen you really need to understand what's happening build rapport um before you can effectively collaborate and make some therapeutic change here and so my advice for other therapists that would want to go into doing work like this is, you know, being patient, flexible, open, and also accepting there are certain things that you will not be able to change as much as you'd like to, but you just, you know, try your best. You're really there to be a partner with um, the families and the caregivers and the children you're serving. And so uh, that can be an effective way to approach it, I feel like. Yeah. And I feel like, honestly, that advice goes really well for people who are working in the States in a culture that's different than theirs, whether it be a low resource school or a different part of the country, that just that observe, wait, listen, try Mm -hmm. to navigate the situation first as an observer, and then you can start taking next steps. But I often hear from many therapists, they get into these kind of shocking therapy situations, you know, whether it be a school or a SNF, and they immediately want to make change, which is a wonderful thing, but sometimes isn't as effective as they hoped. Right. So you mentioned a little bit about some other people that you worked with and, you know, the PT, OT, did you all co-treat? Were, your, were you mostly working independently? How did that work when, if a child was receiving multiple therapies? It was pretty informal across the board. So my individual therapy was pretty, I did have a schedule, you know, and that sort of thing, but really it was, you know, hey, in a situation where I saw, you know, positioning for a child just seemed really off and I, I didn't know how to fix it. I would go over to the PT and be like, help me out. Like, let's, you know, get him sitting appropriately, appropriately. So it's safe to eat. And, um, there were certain activities where actually one of the, a lot of fun that I had was during a summer program that a drama therapist and I she was a volunteer from the Netherlands. And so her focus was approaching, you know, social emotional issues through the art of their theater and drama. We did a a short summer program where we'd have the younger children. So preschool through probably six, seven years of age, we did kind of a cuenta cuento. So like storytelling time. Um, and so developing programs like that was a lot of fun. Um, but then also, with the local therapists, which was, there was a local physical therapist from the Dominican Republic in addition to the volunteer physical therapist from Spain. And so with them, it was a lot of just like, Hey, I'm seeing this with this kid. What's your experience or, you know, just problem solving. And do you, did you maintain relationships with those that you worked with while you were there? Are you still in contact? I am. Yep. I I'm still in contact with, um, the individuals in the Dominican Republic, also volunteers who have since returned to their home countries. I um, have big hopes to travel all around the world and see them again soon. Don't know how realistic that expectation is, but Powerball. Um, yeah. It, Kendra, you're going to buy Powerball tickets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know, don't, don't forget us. That I'm working again, you know, getting the time off and finding that flexibility will be a challenge, but it really was an amazing experience to learned from, um, professionals from all over the world. I'm sure. So Kendra, you have already given us so much sage advice about not only 
how to navigate volunteering, but also when I hear you speak, I think about really navigating any situation you come into where you are an outsider and you're trying to learn more about your environment while trying to make change. And so thank you so much. What, as kind of a final final words of wisdom for you, what advice would you give to an SLP who is looking to volunteer as a speech therapist abroad? I would say just really consider your intentions and expectations behind why you want to go abroad. I know that my goal was really just, I had this word in mind um, of knowing. I really wanted to know what it was like to work in a different environment, what the situation of the the caregivers and the children was like. Um, And so I think it can be really harmful to go into it with a different expectation, such as, you know, you hear about the savior complex or, you know, just it's, it's a personal thing, but I'd say really, you know, talk to other volunteers, understand what it would be like and think about your expectations and intentions of, of why you're going and what you expect to get out of the experience. I think that's great advice just for, for even working within the States, outside of the States. It's just, that's good advice for anybody. And you know, you've just had this very remarkable experience and you did mention that once the Powerball money comes in, you're going to travel worldwide and not forget us (laughs) us here on the podcast. Uh, But what is next for you? What's before that happens? What, what, what is next? Yeah. So right now I'm, I'm settling back into life in Michigan. That's where I'm from originally. Um, I am enjoying my work in early intervention, and I really appreciate the fact that I can work so closely with these diverse families, bilingual families, um, within kind of my home community of Michigan as well. And so I'm excited to be here, kind of explore the options that I have locally. Um, you know, another another trip abroad could happen soon, another year abroad, maybe. I'm pretty open, but um, right now I, I really appreciate the chance to be settled back into the States, but also have these relationships I've built abroad and also, you know, the potential to do something like that again. Well, I look forward to hearing what, what you do so we can live through you. And it has been wonderful to hear about this. I love this. And I know that people who are listening there, this is a big area of interest. So I'm sure you've piqued even more people's interest. So thank you so much for sharing this with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And if you'd like to get in touch with us at the podcast, send us an email at slpfulldisclosure at gowithadvanced.com. And each episode's show notes are available at the website, gowithadvanced.com backslash SLP full disclosure and make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to get the latest updates. And if you want to give us a little shout out, make sure to leave us a review on Apple podcasts. It really helps spread the word. Also special thanks to Jonathan Carey for producing this episode and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. And as always, this episode was powered by advanced travel therapy. See you next time. Mm -hmm.